Let's open up to Matthew chapter 1. We're looking at really the Christmas story this year uh, through the lens of the Gospel of Matthew. Last week we looked at Joseph, and Matthew seems to tell the birth of Jesus and through the eyes of Joseph. Luke does it through Mary. But um, one passage that I didn't know um, whether we should do is this passage that I'm about to read, um, simply because um, it's kind of an interesting passage. Anyway, Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, and wherever you are, whether you're in your living room, your bedroom, uh, your kitchen, wherever you are, um, if you would, in honor of God and His Word, to stand as we read God's Word. All right. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab. And Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asaph, Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihu, Abihu, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Messiah. This is God's word. Amen and amen. You may take a seat. Boring. I saw you. I saw you all out there. I saw you roll your eyes as I'm reading these names. Your kids were probably saying, uh, that dude just read off a bunch of names that even he couldn't pronounce. And for today's reader, there are few things less meaningful than the frequent list of names you have to plod through when you read through your Bible. Try, if, you, if, you really want, if you really want it, go to the first nine chapters of 1 Chronicles and read those list of names. Some of you who've read through the Bible in a year and you go through these large chunks of reading, you come across something like these names. And if you're like me, you probably just like, yeah, okay, we're going to just, we're going to go through this. But today we stood, we stood and heard these names, and there's a few things as we're, we're looking at the birth of Jesus and this idea that hope is born, as we see behind me, we're looking at it through the lens of Matthew. And I have to admit to you all, 
that I didn't know if I wanted to hit this first part of the book of Matthew. Because you wonder what is in here. And like I said before, there's nothing really that feels less meaningful than just reading off a bunch of names. But in any many ways, Matthew provides what we would expect from a genealogy. But what's interesting about what Matthew does here is that there are some ways that Matthew departs from the well-worn grooves of expectation when he compiles this genealogy. And I think that Matthew has something in here for us. I think that God has something in this list of names for us that if we pay attention, if we gut it out, we might find something in here. All right, you guys with me? No eye rolling. I promise we're gonna, we're gonna, there is something in here that we're going to get to. All right. One thing about genealogies, genealogies are in the Bible for a purpose. Genealogies provide the pedigree of whoever they are moving towards or away from. So in this case, it's Jesus. And so if you wanted to know the fruit of the family tree, if you want to know the character of Jesus, the pedigree of Jesus, the qualifications of Jesus who is going to be called the Messiah, what you need to do is you need to look at his family tree. You need to look at the genealogy. And so this shows the pedigree of the person that descendants gain meaning and significance by virtue of their forefathers. The fruit of the family tree is determined by its roots. And so in the Jewish world and in Matthew's world, and Matthew spends a tremendous amount of energy compiling this list, going to various sources to compile this list and to preserve genealogies. Now, back to our day. I think it's important also for us to note that in our world, in North America, we tend to not like genealogies. Even from the the founding of our country, in many ways, for Europeans who were coming over to the New World, it was a chance to really cut that lineage off, that it wasn't that who came before me determines my place in society. In many ways, those who came from Europe to America came because they didn't like their genealogy. They didn't like their station in the world, and they wanted to essentially make a name for themselves. And that, that sense has been pervasive in North American um, New European culture. On the other hand, there are other people that came here as slaves and were completely cut off from their family, whether they liked it or not. And even if they wanted to go back and trace their genealogy, there was no way to do it. Now, in the last couple of decades, maybe in the last three or four decades, there has been a movement towards ancestry. And whether it's taking a DNA test or ancestry.com or something like that, there's been a movement culturally to do some genealogy or ancestry work. I need to do a little bit of a shout out here to my mom. (laughs) My mom, you guys might have someone like this in your family. My mom has spent hundreds of hours cataloging the the ancestry of our family back back generations back. She has um, traveled and made chalk etchings on gravestones in various parts of the country. She's found her father's family name in the, in the records at Ellis Island. I mean, she has done so much work on that, and it's been a really rich thing. But I suppose 
One of the things you do, and I don't know if you've had this experience in your family where someone has done some work back on the family tree, but there's always this sense as you look back in your family tree, like, be careful what you look, what you dig up in your family tree. You don't know what kind of crazy aunt or crazy uncle or crazy grandparent you've got there in the family tree. And it might not all be pristine. It might be nostalgic, but it might not all be pristine. No, no personal stories on that front today. All right, everybody. Um, so, but be, be careful what you wish for. And there are a few things to note about Matthew's record of Jesus's ancestry here in Matthew chapter one. So on the one hand, Jesus has a very nice pedigree. On the one hand, Jesus has a very nice pedigree. Look at verse one. The book of the genealogy, or the, really it says the Genesis of Jesus Christ, the beginning of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, and he is called the son of David, and the son of Abraham, two people that God has made a covenant with, the Abrahamic covenant that, that God through Abraham would be a blessing to the nations, and also the Davidic covenant that there would be a king who sits on the throne of David in perpetuity forever. And Jesus finds himself as a son of Abraham, but also as a son of David. Those are the two big ones, but in, there's also in his line some other heavy hitters in his, in his uh, ancestry. Isaac, Jacob, who is also called Israel. Jacob has 12 sons, the nation of Israel, the tribes of Israel. He is from the fourth son, the son Judah. Judah is where the kingly line will come from. When you look at the blessings that Jacob pronounces on his 12 sons, he says to Judah that the scepter will not depart. The kingly scepter will not depart from Judah. The kings will come from Judah. Son of David, but also Solomon, the greatest king in Israel. This is part of the pristine pedigree of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, and Matthew wants you to know it. Jesus is the son of Abraham, a blessing to the nations. Jesus is the son of David, a rightful heir to the throne. He's the son of Judah, heir to the throne of the kingly. The scepter will be in his hand. But Matthew will also make some additions to this ancestry that were uncommon in Jewish genealogy keeping. He breaks the pattern of genealogy braggadocio. You know, like this, in a lot of ways, the, this pedigree, this would be a, a brag fest, a pride fest, but Matthew brings the genealogy of Jesus away from that kind of bragging, away from that kind of pride and arrogance, even though son of Abraham, son of Judah, son of David, son of Solomon, he will break the pattern and sometimes we learn a lot from when speakers or writers do not follow the standard or expected conventions. They jump out of the well-worn grooves of expectation, and we find that there are things that Matthew is doing here that no other Jewish genealogists did. Listen to what Matthew says. One, two, this is what you would expect. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers, all to be expected. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, 
he mentions the mother here by Tamar. We'll come back to Tamar in a bit. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nation, Nation the father of Salmon. All to be expected, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, mentions the mother. Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, mentions the mother. Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David the king, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, mentions the mother, Bathsheba, without mentioning her name, just the wife of Uriah. All in all, he mentions or alludes to four women, five if you count Mary, in this genealogy. Four women, five if you count Mary, and each of these women, each of these women by their very mention, would have raised an eyebrow to those who listen. One, that he even mentions the mother, but there's something about these women that would have, people would have been, oh, okay, I remember that story. And he mentions and alludes to these women, and one of the questions that really has baffled scholars is, why does Matthew break form and mention these four women? Five, if you count Mary, you can understand why he mentions Mary, it's the mother of, it's the mother of Jesus. But why does he mention these other four? Matthew's inclusion of these four women has been something of a head-scratcher. So why? Okay, let's, let's hear it. These are the four women. Now, I'm going to walk through, and maybe we can find a little a common thread through these, but the first one he mentions is Tamar. He mentions that Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, if you want to read about Tamar, you can read in Genesis 38, but here's the story of Tamar. Does anybody know the story of Tamar? If you do, you know what I'm about to say is basically PG-13, okay? Tamar marries the oldest son of Judah. You remember Judah, of the 12 sons, Judah is the one, the scepter will not depart from Judah. So Judah has an oldest son, and he marries Tamar. Now, it says in Scripture that this oldest son is bad news, and so the Lord kills him, <laughs> okay? Good news, like, okay, we're already off to a great start here. Um, but Tamar, what's the ex expectation is that there would be another brother who would come in and really fill the role of, his pre of the previous brother, the brother who had passed away. Now, this seems very strange to us today, but that that brother would then take Tamar as his wife, and that the son that would come from Tamar would be essentially the son of the eldest brother. Now, the, old, the other brother doesn't do his job, and that's totally PG-13, which we're not going to talk about here this morning. You can read it for yourself if you'd like to. It's not for family viewing. But we find out that, so essentially Judah says, well, what happens is because that other brother doesn't do his job, the Lord kills him. So the two oldest brothers of Judah are dead. Tamar is here, and Judah says, hey, this Tamar lady She's like a son killer, so let's send her back to her family, but I'll promise that when my youngest is old enough, I'll marry him to you, and you'll carry on the line. Time passes, Tamar is in mourning, and the, the son is, is growing up, growing up, growing up, and she's like, I wonder what's going on. So, uh, so Judah, 
Sorry, this is, I, look, it, I, it even makes me queasy to, to talk about this, but Judah goes up to this feast where he is going to shear his sheep, um, and he sees on the side of the road, he sees a prostitute. He goes in, and he's, he sleeps with her, and it happens to be Tamar in disguise. Like, because these brothers won't do this, it's obligations of carrying on the family line. Tamar takes it unto herself to dress up like a prostitute, and whether she lures him in or whether he, I don't even know why Judah is, I mean, this is, this is all in the Bible. I can't believe it's in here. This is not only in the Bible, it's in the, it's in the genealogy of Jesus. Okay, all right. I'm going to stop there, okay? I'm just going to stop there because that's more than I bargained for when I'm looking at the genealogy of Jesus. So Tamar... Essentially, eventually what ends up happening, I mean, oh gosh, I don't even know if I can go on. Judah impregnates Tamar. Judah finds out that Tamar is pregnant. He doesn't know it's her as the prostitute. She gets, anyway, all this to say he's going to kill her. She says, ah, it was you. It was this big reveal. And then all of a sudden, Tamar, that Judah realizes, I had not fulfilled my obligation to Tamar, and Tamar becomes a hero in the story. There we go. That's Tamar. Rahab is the second woman mentioned. You can read about Rahab in Joshua 2 and Joshua 6. As the nation of Israel comes into the promised land, they stand on the eastern border. They see their first obstacle, the city of, J- of Jericho. They don't know how they're going to they're gonna take it down, but they find help from one woman, a prostitute named Rahab. She brings them in, she hides them, she sends them back out, she sends down the scarlet cord. Before the walls come, Israel comes and rescues her out of the walls. The walls come down, and Rahab then aligns herself with the nation of Israel, a prostitute. Ruth is the third one mentioned. You can read about Ruth in the the book of Ruth. Ruth is a a Moabite. She was attached to her mother-in-law, Naomi. They were both widowed. They were in Israel. They had no recourse. They were both widows. They had no income. They had no protection. Ruth finds herself gleaning wheat from the field of a man named Boaz. Boaz realizes what what Ruth is doing. She's caring for her mother-in-law, Naomi. Ruth is a a Gentile, a Moabite. Naomi is, is is Jewish, but they're both They both have nothing to their name. Boaz provides protection for them, and then Ruth takes the initiative. It would be Ruth takes the initiative, and she finds this way to present herself to Boaz as that she is going to present herself as a wife to Boaz, essentially. It would be essentially the idea of like a woman proposing to a man in our day. Somewhat scandalous. But it turns out that Ruth becomes the grandmother of, of the greatest king, David. You can read the book of Ruth. Ruth Ruth is actually a very charming love story with subtleties, honor, but not a little bit of scandal in there. The final one, Matthew cannot even bring himself to name Bathsheba. He simply calls her the wife of Uriah. Bathsheba, while her husband Uriah the Hittite is out at war, decides to take a bath on the roof of her house in plain sight of the king's palace. King David, who should be out fighting with his troops, sees her, sends for her, sleeps with her. 
She becomes pregnant. David kills her husband, takes Bathsheba for his wife. Bathsheba will be the mother of Solomon. Happyancestry.com, everybody. I mean, is it, it, like, cra- what a bunch of crazy grandmas. Like, this is, this is nuts, and this is right here in the pedigree of Jesus. You've got Jesus, son of Abraham, son of David, son of Judah, son of Bathsheba, right? Like, son of Tamar. And there has been a little bit of a question, what is it that ties all of these women together, and what, is it, what difference does it make for Jesus and Christmas? Like, you're like, this is the weirdest Christmas message I've ever heard. Believe me, I'm, I'm, ha- I'm having a good time, but this is a weird one. Here's the first thing. What, some of the earliest scholars, like Jerome, 3rd, 4th century, they say this, that what ties all of these women together is that they're all sinners. And their inclusion underscores that Jesus is the Savior of the unrighteous. Now, that is true. Jesus is the Savior of the unrighteous. Now, how much all of these women are simply known as sinners is a little bit tenuous. Like Bathsheba, okay, I can see that. Tamar, all right. Rahab, she's a prostitute, okay. But Ruth, like Ruth is not a notorious, infamous sinner. She's, she's caring for her mother-in-law. She's following the, the, the uh, you know, she's trying to do her best, essentially. So I would say this, that even though it is true that Jesus has come to be the Savior of the unrighteous, I don't think that's what Matthew is doing here. Or he's do, he might be doing something similar, but it's not so simple. Here's another option that's, that, might, that might actually be true, that they are all Gentiles. And their inclusion demonstrates the universal call to salvation that Jesus is going to provide. It's not just for the Jews, it is also for the Gentiles. And these women provide that that evidence. Now, it is a big point for Matthew that Jesus is the, the Savior of the Gentiles. If you note, after Joseph and the passage we read last week, the next passage is the visit of the Magi, where the king of Israel is going to try to kill Jesus, but these foreign dignitaries come to pay homage to Jesus. The Gentiles come to pay homage to Jesus. And Matthew will have these various points along the way where the the centurion in Capernaum has faith like no other in Israel. The Syrophoenician woman who's outside of Israel, she has, Jesus has not seen faith like that in all of Israel. And eventually you have the centurion centurion standing at the cross saying, surely this was the Son of God. You have this Gentile who is affirming that Jesus is the Son of God. And then at the very end of the book of Matthew, you have the Great Commission. Go into all the nations, teaching them, to uh, discipling, and telling them to observe all the things that I have taught. Go into all the world. And Matthew goes to great lengths to hammer home that Jesus is for the nations. Matthew is pro-Gentile, which I like because I'm a Gentile. Even though I appreciate the Jewish roots of the New Testament and my faith, I am a Gentile, and probably most of you are. Now, it may be true Rahab was a Canaanite, Ruth was a Moabite, Tamar was also a Canaanite, and Bathsheba married a Hittite. Hittites are from Turkey, the area of Turkey. 
Um, but Mary's not a Gentile. So of the five women mentioned, yes, four, maybe Gentiles. So anyway, all that to say, why does Matthew include these women? And I suppose the most plausible way of putting it is that, for lack of a better term, all of these women, including Mary, Tamar, Ruth, Rahab, Bathsheba, Mary, all of these women were women of scandal. They were all women of scandal. And the children that were born to them were born out of the scandalous nature of the non-conventional way that they came into the world. Whether that was a sinful way that God redeemed or whether it was the showing of initiative that was, was I, there's no other word for it, whether it was scandalous or whether it was conventional, all these women, the children that were born to them, were women of scandal. The children were children of scandal. And whatever and however the scandal that they find themselves in, it's a means of bringing about the promises of God. All of these women stand at a very significant point where either the line is going to run out, like in the case of Tamar, that the line of Judah is going to run out the proper line, and she has to take this scandalous initiative, I mean, crazy initiative, where she doesn't know what's going to happen. I mean, in the Bible, it says that they're going to burn her because she's an adulterer. She's vindicated, and then she becomes a hero, but the, the risk of scandal that she takes for Ruth, the line might die out, but Boaz and Ruth's initiative save the day. The nation of Israel needs to come into the promised land. It's a prostitute, Rahab, who provides her own initiative. Bathsheba and David. Horrible sin, but out of it, God brings Solomon. He redeems it. I don't would say God doesn't condone it or cause it, but he redeems it. I like the way the British scholar R.T. France dryly puts it in answering this question, why does Matthew include this group of scandalous women in his dry British sense? He says, perhaps Matthew thought that Jesus' birth of a socially insignificant and unmarried mother needed some scriptural support. I think Matthew has an appreciation for the way that God is able to work in this world with the strangeness and brokenness of his people. Matthew has a special appreciation for that. And I think when we, when we look at Jesus, Jesus also has a appreciation for how God can work in the strangeness and brokenness and scandal of this world. I think when you see Jesus interacting with women, whether it be mothers or grandmothers or prostitutes or, uh, or all women, widows, that Jesus has a particular touch because he knew his mother was a woman of scandal and that he had some crazy grandmas back in the line that were also women of scandal. 
If you want to know what Jesus is like and the sensibilities and the compassion of Jesus, you look at the women of scandal that are part of who He is, God in human flesh, God with us in our brokenness, in our darkness. In the scandals of our lives, God has chosen to work. I suppose, you know, last week we noted that with Joseph, Joseph, when he finds out that Mary is pregnant, the scandal, he's trying to figure out how can I quietly get out of this but also not put her to shame? How do I get out of this scandal? And the angel shows up and he says, essentially, Joseph, we don't want you out of the scandal. We want you part of the scandal. As a matter of fact, Joseph, we need you as part of the scandal. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Don't be afraid of the scandal. What links all of these women together is that they are women of scandal. Some that we may be more comfortable with. Like, I'm much more comfortable with the scandal of Ruth, but the scandal of Tamar, I'm like, ah, like, 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 elf when they spray the, the, uh, the perfume on his tongue, you know, and he's like, ah, like, that's how I feel when I read that story. I don't know what, I mean, I, I would imagine when we, some of these you're comfortable with, some of these you're not so comfortable, like Bathsheba and David, like, ah, that a king came out of that union is horrifying to me, but God seems to find a way to redeem the scandal, to work in the middle of disruption, and we noted last week, when God comes into this world, when God brings new creation, it will always come with disruption. And dare I say that it will come with scandal. If God is going to break through in our world, if God is going to, if, if the God of this universe is going to break through in this world that has rebelled against him, then whatever God does in this world that has rebelled against him is going to look like scandal in the eyes of our world. There's nothing more scandalous than the greatest work that God does, and that happens when Jesus is on the cross The ultimate scandal will be that God has come to be with us. Our conquering king has arrived. The Messiah who has come to put all things right, to reward the righteous and punish the wicked, is taken by the Romans, beaten and stripped naked and hung on a cross to die a slow and painful, publicly degrading death. That is not how I would have written the story but it seems as though God is comfortable working in scandal. He knows that He is the redeeming God. And I suppose as you at home, as you think about your own story that we all have, we come to faith in Jesus not out of the pristineness of our past or the pristineness of our our thought life that has no problems. We come to the Lord out of a brokenness and a lostness at a scandal. And we have to look no further than our own lives to note that God seems to know how to be comfortable and to redeem a scandal. I think Paul knows this. In 1 Corinthians, he says, 
to this idea that the Messiah, the conquering king, king, was overwhelmed and degraded by the Romans and put up naked on a Roman cross to die, a shameful death. He says the word of the, the, word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Why would you follow any king like that who's been conquered? Why would you follow a conquered king? But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. He says, for the Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Messiah crucified. A stumbling block, a scandal to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Messiah, the power of God, the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And we look no further than the genealogy of Jesus to note that the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of men. That the weakness, the scandal of God will trump any wisdom of man. And I, we, we walk around living proof of that in our own humility. I, I think as we kind of finish up, as we, as we wrap up this morning, you know, like I said, when I read this stuff, I'm like, I don't, I don't know entirely what to do with it. And I look around at our world, and I look around at what's going on, and there are definitely times where, like, I'm pretty, I'm pretty quick to judge a good scandal. Like, I see a scandal, and I, I'm pretty quick to say, well, they're the good guys, and they're the bad guys. Like, I'm pretty quick to get there. I don't know about you, but sometimes I can be quick, and sometimes I feel like I can be too quick. can be a little bit judgmental. Sometimes I feel like I could... I, I need a little bit more of, of Jesus in me so that as I come to a scandal, I might say, man, we got we to gotta see this. We got to have grace in some of these places. Especially when we think about the dark parts of our past, the dark parts of our world, that we need to have eyes to know that God can enter in and redeem. I think wherever we are, wherever you are this morning, maybe something has come to mind and maybe there's something that as you think about on your own life, just a scandal that you feel like is still there, it's still tainted, there's still, there's still some kind of a taint on you, and I just want to just say, look, there's nothing that you have ever done or has ever been done to you that will disqualify you from the salvation that Jesus has meant to bring you. There's no scandal that can separate you from the love of God. You can ask Jesus. I mean, he's got plenty of scandal in his own life, and he's got the pedigree of scandal going with him. God can bring anything in the darkness into light. God can take any mourning and turn it into dancing. God can take anything that has been corrupted and purify it for his purposes. He can bring a compassionate king out of scandal. What do you need today, this Christmas season, this Advent season? What is something that as you look at it, all you can see is scandal? What do you need in your life to see with new eyes this week? As we go through Christmas, as we look and we sing the songs, and you are, as we can tell, you're, we're deep into our Christmas playlist, right? We're deep into it. But what do you need to see with new eyes this week 
in terms of scandal. Maybe all you can see is scandal and corruption. What do you need to see with new eyes and see the redemptive hand of God in? And Matthew includes these four crazy aunts, crazy grandmas in here to remind us that what you see as scandal, you need to see through the eyes of God and allow God to comment on your scandal and our world's scandal and ask, what do I need to have grace and compassion on? Let God redeem. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. We realize that we are in a world and a society that is racked with scandal, corruption, sexual sin, all of the, and all of, there's, a, there's a, a strange sexual thread that runs through all of these women and their, their, their union with their husbands and the, the, the children that are born to them. Father, we recognize, and we just want to recognize today, you are the God of redemption. You take broken things and you make them right. You take, you take darkness and you bring light into it. Whatever it is for you this morning, just pray and ask God to enter into the situation that you can only see as scandal. Invite Him. Invite Him into that right now. Father, we all have dark parts of ourselves. We ask, Father, that you would come in and do a work in our darkness, that you would bring light to darkness, that this season, this season is about hope being born. Bring hope, Father. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.